0: Thanks for watching today at wildwoodchurch.com. Now here's today's message. Good morning, Wildwood. Turn your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. This morning as we get back into our series uh, called Foundations, a study of the book of Romans. Um, I'm a little bit self-conscious of my nose. I don't know if you can see it. Now, now you probably all can. Uh, the reality is that you would see it as you walked out of the uh, back of the room uh, I had to have some basal cell removed from my nose on Monday. Uh, you know, if you're going to have a form of cancer, that's the, the best kind to have. It's, it's done with. It's over. Um, but, you know, just try not to stare at my nose <laughs> when, you, when you all walk out. Now, exactly that's what you're looking at right now. But when I wrote this sermon, I actually had a bandage on my nose that was kind of nasty. And I was thinking, how am I going to hide that? And the Lord took care of that, so I'm grateful for that. But you know, it's really a great application to today's passage because the reality is that my body was not supposed to respond to the sun the way it did. And the sun was not supposed to give my body cancer. You know, my my body was not supposed to break down, was not supposed to develop cancerous cells, was not supposed to age, and neither was yours. The creation was not supposed to be the way it is, but that's the way it is. Why? Because we live in a fallen, cursed world. The result of Adam and Eve's sin. Now, the good thing is that it's not always going to be this way. You see, this is the way it is, and we just have to accept it. It's the way it is. But it's not always going to be this way, and that is the hope of redemption, And that is the Christian hope, that what we have today is not what we're always going to have. Amen? Now, my doctor told me that I'm not supposed to uh, do anything that causes my blood pressure to rise for two weeks, and I thought that may be harder in terms of preaching without causing my blood pressure to rise than covering over my nose. So we'll see how this goes. Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy. We thank you that you have gathered your church together to worship you. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would receive our worship. We now receive your word, and I pray, Lord, that we would respond to it in a way that glorifies you and honors you and changes our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So, in order for us to understand, really, this 18 through 25 passage, we need to go back to verses 16 and 17, which, because it has been about six weeks, let me just recap. In verses 16 and 17, the Spirit reminds us that we are children of God. The Holy Spirit's, one of the Holy Spirit's roles is to remind us that, in fact, we belong to God as his children. And not just as children, but there's something implied there that we are fellow heirs with Christ. That's what Paul said in verses 16 and 17. We are children of God. The Holy Spirit reminds us of that. that. And because we are children of God, we are fellow heirs with Christ. Let that sink in. What, What God is going to give Jesus for all of eternity, he's going to give to you. We are fellow heirs with Christ. But there's a provisional statement He says, provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. Now, a quick question. Does does suffering with Jesus cause you to become a child of God? No, absolutely not. We are saved by grace through faith. However, since we are children of God, the sonship that we experience is going to follow the same pattern that the Son of God faced. Does that make sense? If we're being conformed to the image of Christ, it makes sense that we're going to follow the same pattern that Jesus practiced and modeled for us, which is suffering and then glory. Look at what Jesus said in Luke twenty-four twenty-six. Was it not necessary that the Christ should should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Following Jesus is not a means of escape from suffering and hardship. And, And it's not like Jesus minced his words. It's not like this is something new and novel. No, Jesus himself made this clear to his disciples. In this world, you will have tribulation. He says to his closest followers, we're going to suffer. That's a fact of life. Many of you are going to get cancer. That's a fact of life. You're all going to die. That's a fact of life. And you're all going to pay taxes. That's a fact of life. Right? That's just where it is. That's that's how it is. However, following Jesus redeems our suffering. You're going to suffer, but following Jesus redeems your suffering. Paul says that our suffering in this life leads to glory as co-heirs with Christ. That's something that you can hold on to. That's something that ought to give you hope in order to persevere to the end. Peter also says, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his uh, glory is revealed. Even Jesus taught this. He says in Luke 6, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Blessed are you. Oh, thanks, Jesus. But watch, blessed are you. Why? Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. Why, why are we blessed? Why are we called to leap for joy when people revile our name as evil on account of the Son of Man? Because Jesus sees it. And Jesus will reward that where it really counts. Paul says in verse 18. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. When he says, I consider, he's not giving his opinion. This isn't, you know, one man's opinion and you have your opinion. No, this is Paul making, is Apostle Paul making an authoritative statement based on his own experience. He had the scars to prove it. Look at what he says in Galatians 6, 17. For I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Before that, he said, let no one bother me. In other words, stop messing with me. Look at my back. I bear the marks of Jesus. Paul knew what it was like to suffer for Jesus. Now, what exactly are we talking about these marks of Jesus? Well, here they are. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes minus one. What's five times 40, 200 minus one each, 195 lashings, 195 times the man was whipped by the Jews. He bore the marks of Christ on his body. He took his tunic off and there they are. Don't bother me. He says, don't bother me. Don't, don't, don't come at me. I bear the marks of Christ. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. He was stoned and left for dead. They they dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. He revitalized and goes back into the city. Jesus, uh, excuse me, Paul understood what it was like to suffer for Jesus. And what was his assessment? Just a few chapters earlier in that very same letter that that we just read where he listed all the things. Just a few chapters earlier, he said, for this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So compared to this eternal weight of glory that's beyond comparison what Paul has just described, or what we, what we saw, what he would then go on to describe in that letter of 195 lashings and three times being beaten with rods and stoned to death, and oh, uh, by the way, I skipped over all of the shipwrecks and the danger from, from thieves and danger from Gentiles and danger from Jews and cold and exposure and hunger, all those things that he experienced, he says this is light and momentary affliction. There's no wishful thinking in Pauline theology. There's no vision of utopia in this life. There will be suffering. You're going to endure hardship. But you all endure hardship, but excuse me, but all that you endure now, Paul says, is not even worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Every pain that you've ever experienced, every pain you've ever experienced, if you could bundle all of that up, is not even worth comparing to the glory that is going to be revealed to us. I love what Kent Hughes said here. He says, we can compare a thimble of water with the sea. We cannot compare our suffering with the coming glory. Verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, when Paul says creation, what he means here is everything other than mankind. It's the subhuman creation. Everything in creation except us. He's going to talk about two different classes. Now, are we part of creation? Absolutely. But he's going to separate Us from creation. So right now he's talking about the subhuman creation. Everything, the immaterial creation. And he personifies it as scripture often does. In Psalm 98, the rivers clap and the hills sing. In Isaiah 55, 12, the mountains and the hills sing and the trees clap with joy. Jesus says that if you don't worship, that the rocks will cry out. The Bible says that the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. And this eager longing that Paul says that that creation is waiting with eager longing, this eager longing is like stretching the neck, like craning the neck, or, or stepping up on your tiptoes trying to get a glimpse of what is coming over the horizon. It's great anticipation. Something's coming. I want to see it first. I'm I'm, I'm ready to see it. And Paul says that creation, all of creation, is like it's on its tiptoes, looking out, anxious for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, why is it necessary that creation looks forward to the revealing of the sons of God? Because the earth and everything in it was cursed In Genesis 3, creation itself is kept from performing as it was created to perform. It was kept from producing as it was created to produce. It was throttled, repressed, frustrated. Or as Paul says in verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. In other words, creation didn't rebel against God, it didn't subject itself, it wasn't creation that went wrong, it was what? It was man that went wrong. And as a result of man sinning, rejecting the Lord and his instructions and his word and his presence, creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Who is him who subjected it? Well, who has authority over the earth? God does. Now, Adam and Eve were given dominion over the earth prior to the fall, but they lost that in the fall. So God has subjected the earth. What does it say in three seventeen and 18? Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain... You shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. This is God speaking to Adam, and he's cursing the ground, all of creation. This is a, this is a swipe across creation. All of creation is not going to be frustrated. Why, Adam? Because of you. Because of what you've done. And your life is going to be hard, and, and, and your body is going to respond to the earth and respond to the sun by producing cancer cells. And it wasn't supposed to be that way, but that's the way it is. And your garden was supposed to produce an abundance of fruit, and instead it's going to produce thistles and thorns. And you're not going to have enough water on some parts of the earth, and you're going to be flooded on other parts. It's the way it is. It's not the way it was supposed to be, but that's the way it is. The, The creation was subjected to futility, because of him who subjected it. Now Paul continues saying that the creation was subjected to futility, look, in hope. I love this. Genesis 3 is perhaps one of the most paradoxical chapters in the Bible because at the same time you have God cursing man and cursing the earth, but at the same time promising that it's not always going to be this way. Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel, the promise that, that God's going to send the seed of woman, he's going to crush Satan's head, even though Satan bruises his heel. And we see that fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But now look, the creation is subjected to futility in hope. It's not always going to be this way. But in hope that the creation itself will be what? This is Verse 21. Set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So creation is currently in the corruption or in bondage to corruption. That means decay, destruction, all those beautiful flowers that you have set out that that you've enjoyed all summer long, The annuals that you've put out, the bright colors, what's happening to them right now? They're fading. They're drooping. Why? Because they're subject to decay. And what do you got to do? You replace them with a fall plant. And what's going to happen, sadly, what's going to happen in a couple of months? Those will also droop. And then the whole Quad Cities will be covered in dirty snow. Ah, boo. Ah, it's coming. Why? Because it's in bondage to corruption. The whole creation is subject to this futility and is submitted to bondage to corruption. It cannot produce, it cannot perform as it was created to. But just like the curse to Adam and Eve was not always going to be or will not always be, neither will it always be this way with creation, because creation will soon be set free from the bondage to corruption. So look, if you think that this world, this creation, is beautiful today, and it is, imagine what it's going to look like when the Lord creates a new heaven and a new earth, when it is set free from its bondage to corruption, when it's no longer restrained by sin and curse When the Lord makes a new heaven and a new earth, like he says in Revelation 21, 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. At some point, the Lord is going to start over. And there's going to be this eternal dwelling place New Jerusalem is going to come down on a new earth, a new heaven, and God is going to dwell there with us forever. This is the blessed hope of redemption, church. Now, I have been blessed by the Lord to see some of the world's most beautiful things. I have been all over the world because of the military. (laughs) Kelly and I, I mean, America is beautiful. We've been all over, part of the Midwest is beautiful. We've been all over the place. And we've seen beautiful things. We see beautiful things outside of our own uh, backyard. After, uh, you know, Think about the, the beautiful summer thunderstorm that clears at evening. You, you have seen things that have taken your breath away. And I want you to remember that what you have observed, all the beauty that you've ever observed, was a creation that was... In bondage to corruption. Now imagine what it's going to be like when those flowers don't require miracle grow. (laughs) When the gardens don't require weeding. When your body doesn't require joint pain relief or cancer surgery. Amen? Paul says that, that what, what's going to be revealed to us is beyond comparison. I, I, anything we try to do to compare is going to fall short. Verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Now, parents, we understand what this means, right? Dads, it's hard to... When, when mamas have babies, it's hard on us. Thank you, Andrew. <laughs> Moms, the pains of childbirth are real. Amen? Yeah. Amen. It's excruciating. The, the whole creation, Paul says, is feeling these pains. What, what we observe in creation is the creation groaning in the pains of childbirth. Now, this implies something though. The pains of childbirth imply something, don't they? What comes after the pain of childbirth? The bliss of a new baby, right? Think about it, the joy and the peace, and i I would say elation moms wouldn't you agree that you're flooded with elation after the baby is born, and the baby puts the, uh, the they put the baby on your chest i've done that five times i've watched it it's incredible to watch my wife going from excruciating pain within moments to elated joy and I would say that that There is a glory in a woman's childbirth. There's a glory to that. You know, it begins, and it's glorious because of the pain at first. If it was easy, it would just be routine. But it's glorious because it's full of pain. And then here's this precious baby placed upon your chest. And all of a sudden, that pain almost goes away. That pain, there's a reason that the doctor uh, on women who are having their tubes tied, the doctor doesn't ask her, are you sure, while she's in labor? The doctor asks once the baby's on the chest, are you sure? Are you making the final decision? Is this right? Because when the baby's on the chest, the glory floods the room. All of creation is currently groaning together in those pains of childbirth. But look, Paul isn't writing to encourage creation. He's writing to encourage you and me and the people in Rome He knows that we all suffer. And his concern is not the the mountains and the seas and the gardens. His concern is you. That you would be faithful to the end. That you would endure the pains of childbirth looking to the bliss of the birth of the child. Verse 23. And not only the creation... But we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now look, just as creation is permitted to groan in the pain of childbirth, we too are permitted to groan. No one disparages a mom from groaning in the pains of labor. Wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be ridiculous to have a, a, a woman in labor in the hospital and the doctor say, can you keep it down? People are trying to sleep. <laughs> no, one, no, one, no one disparages mom from groaning in the pains of labor. We all expect it. And Paul says creation is groaning and we're groaning. Brother and sister, it's okay to groan. It's okay to mourn. It's okay to be frustrated with your body. Why does it not function the way you want it to? Why doesn't your marriage function the way it's supposed to? Why isn't your job as fulfilling as it ought to be? Why is church hard? It's okay to groan. It's okay to mourn. It's okay to cry out like Paul did in in Romans seven, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? The older you get, the more the more literal you take that. Who's gonna rescue me from this breakdown body? Amen. Anybody? I'm just the only one getting old. Listen, mothers and fathers are not supposed to lose their babies. It's not supposed to happen. We're not supposed to battle cancer and we're not supposed to die young. Our bodies aren't supposed to break down and our minds aren't supposed to lust. Our children aren't supposed to rebel and our parents aren't supposed to neglect. Our businesses aren't supposed to fail and our marriages aren't either. It's okay to groan. It's okay to mourn. It's okay to to weep. It's okay to wail. But here's the deal. Knowing what lies ahead, knowing now that what you're going to experience is not even worth comparing to what you're experiencing now ought to provide you a tangible help to endure what you're walking through. You know, that groaning together in the pains of childbirth when mama has the baby on her chest and the elation that she feels. Moms, does that deny that the pain was real? In order for you to feel the joy when you hold your newborn baby, do you have to deny or pretend that it wasn't the most painful experience of your life? No. But you have to put the pain in its place. Holding the baby puts the pain in its place. I can't imagine any mom that reflects on this goes, no, the pain was not worth it. I wish that I didn't go through that. The pain was not worth this child. Now, sometimes you might be thinking about that, about two years old, three years old, kindergarten, (laughs) teenage years, 20s, you know, I don't know, in your basement. I don't know, maybe you're thinking that way. But it's not a denial of the pain. It's putting pain in its place. You don't have to deny that your life is hard. But you have to put the pain in its place. This is short-lived pain. It's light, momentary affliction to receive 195 lashings and three beatings and be stoned nearly to death. This should fill us with real hope, Not, not superficial hope, folks. This is not grin and bear it. This is not pretend everything's okay. What's that Lego song? Everything is awesome. Right? It, let's just deny it. Let's just deny the, that, that life is hard. That is not what Paul is talking about here. That is not what we're invited to. It should fill us with real hope and it ought to give us the necessary stamina to persevere to the end. The thing is, that it's not as though the Lord has abandoned us, it's not like we walk this alone. Look at how Paul refers to us. He says, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Now, he uses an agricultural term here. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. The Spirit is the indication of what is to come. I'm not a farmer, though I pretend want to be one. But I understand that the first fruits what comes up initially is an indication of what you can expect in the harvest. The Holy Spirit is like an earnest payment to us. It's like a pledge that God is going to come through with his promises. And he's more than just an earnest payment. He's more than just a pledge. He's a very present help. In fact, next week when we look at verse 26, we're going to see that, that the Holy Spirit is with us. He helps us in our weakness. So we're not walking this hard life, this journey alone. The Lord has not abandoned us, and he never will. But while we wait, we wait eagerly, going back to verse 23... We wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We wait eagerly. Where did you hear that before? Well, the creation waits eagerly. The creation—it's craning its neck, is standing up on tiptoes, looking over the horizon, anticipating something happening. The Lord's going to make this right. And we also wait eagerly. We crane our necks. We stand on tiptoes. We we stand with. We wait with eager anticipation, waiting for the redemption of our bodies, which Paul classifies as adoption as sons. He says, we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, comma, meaning the redemption of our bodies. You see, the the Holy Spirit has already told us, has already reminded us that we are his children. We have not received the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but the spirit of adoption as sons. We already have adoption. This is the already, not yet. We already have adoption, and yet we wait for the full consummation of our adoption when we're ushered into the father's house. And what is it? Redemption of our bodies. We long for our redemption. We long for that glory that is to come. The glory that we will be revealed not only to us, the ESV says that will be revealed to us, but also in us. In other words, it's not simply that we're going to get to heaven and simply see the glory. Future glory is not simply a place, though heaven and earth will be overflowing with the glory of God. Don't get me wrong. But this glory will include us. It's not just that there's going to be this glorious new heaven and new earth, but the glory that we're waiting on actually includes us and will be revealed in us. We are the crowning jewel of creation. And our redemption, or in our redemption, Jesus says that the righteous will shine like the sun. We're going to see the glory of God. We're going to see the glory of the new earth. We're going to see it. But we're also going to recognize that our faithful suffering in this life the way that we respond to things outside of our control, the way that we put off the old self and put on Christ, the way that we deny our flesh, the way that we yield ourselves to Christ in service to other people, the way that we respond to medical diagnoses and financial setbacks, the way that we seek first the kingdom of God with our possessions, the way that we trust him with all of our lives, is going to be revealed for what it really is, full of glory. Think about a Super Bowl team. And they're on the field, and the the ticker tape is falling, and everything's exploding. Glory is not revealed to them. Glory is revealed in them. They've recognized, we, this team, we've endured to the end, and we've tasted victory. Now, who will we credit? Who will be the MVP? I, I, I hate to use, you know, these kind of illustrations break down all the time, but who will be the MVP? Of course, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. But our suffering for his sake is showing, is revealing the glory of God, and we're going to share in that glory. Paul once again returns to the theme of hope in verses 24 and 25. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So, the ultimate hope of a Christian is the redemption of our bodies to eternal life. It's not temporal relief from suffering. Though we thank the Lord when we ask the Lord for healing to our bodies and he provides healing either through medicine or, or miraculously. We thank the Lord for that, right? But we do so knowing that our bodies are eventually still going to die. So it's not ultimately in the healing of our bodies. It's not ultimately in the removal of our suffering. We thank the Lord when he answers those prayers, but that's not ultimately where our hope lies. Our hope is not anything we can see in this life. Paul says, for who hopes for what He sees. It requires that we wait for it with patience. And that is the hope of the gospel. The hope of the gospel is that our life, our suffering, our grief, our mourning, our groaning, every tear that falls from our eyes is not meaningless, is not wasted, is not forgotten. Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation. But he continues. He says, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. There's more to the story. You're going to have tribulation. It's a fact of life. But don't lose heart and don't lose hope. Because I have overcome the world. Jesus invites you to come to him with all of your burdens with all of your shame, with all of your sin. Jesus invites you to come to him in one moment of time, one decisive, Jesus, I give you my life, I surrender myself, I'm asking you for forgiveness of my sin, I repent, I turn, because let's face it, a lot of our suffering is because of our own sin. Is it not? Stubbornness, hard-heartedness, ignorance, foolishness, rebellion. Jesus invites us to come at one point in time, one moment of time. My question is, has that happened in your life yet? Have you come to Jesus in one decisive moment and said, Jesus, I submit to you as my Lord and I ask you to forgive my sin? Yes, one moment of time, but also in every moment of time. Jesus invites you to come to him in every moment of time with your your sin, with your shame, with your suffering. He invites us to abide in him. What does it mean to abide? It means to remain. It means that you don't don't come to the Lord on Sunday and go, all right, I've got my, my warm fuzzies for the week or for the month but I come daily to you, Jesus, because without you, I can do nothing. And I rely upon you, and I lean upon you, and I trust in you. I trust that you're going to work all things according to, the, to my good. Not that everything's going to feel good, but you're going to work everything for my good. We'll see that next week. I trust you, Lord, that you're going to lead me, that you're going to use these things, you're going to redeem this suffering that you're going to make a way where there seems to be no way. I trust you never leave, to, to never leave me nor forsake me. I trust you. And so to the suffering and to the heartbroken and to the lonely, the anxious, the beaten down, the tired, the frustrated, the angry, the abused, the beleaguered, to the mom who churns and churns and churns and yet sees so little progress in her kids, to the man who battles the same addiction for decades, to the teen who feels unrelenting pressure to conform to the world. To the woman who just lost her husband. To the couple who just can't seem to click. No matter how much they try to convince themselves that they love each other, they can't seem to make it work. To the father who works two jobs to make ends meet and still comes up short. To the cancer patient who is holding out hope against all hope for a cure. To the weary worker and everybody else, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away and he who has, was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. You know, I said earlier that you can compare a thimble of water to the sea. I did the math. One thimble holds 186 million trillionth of the waters of the world. That's a comparison. 86 million trillion thimbles of water on the planet. That's a comparison. Paul says you cannot compare your present suffering to eternal glory. So eyes up, stiffen your back, Put one step in foot of another because your redemption and your Redeemer draws near. Amen. Amen. Jesus, we thank you that that is true. And we stand on tiptoes peering over the horizon. When will you come? We thank you that you have given us the first fruits of the Holy Spirit We thank you that we have your presence with us every single day and we thank you that we can come before the throne of of grace with confidence to find mercy in our time of need. Help us to do it, Lord. Help us to abide in you. Lord, we groan in the pains of childbirth but we long for that day, Lord, when that pain is turned into elation and glory and we give you praise in anticipation of that great day. In Jesus name, amen. Hey, thanks so much for watching online. I hope that this message has inspired you to greater faith, has encouraged you, maybe convicted or challenged you. We're grateful to be able to provide this content to you online, live and on demand. If you haven't done so already, Follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook, subscribe to us on YouTube so that we can get this content right to you as soon as we upload it. But you know, we believe that as a follower of Jesus Christ, that you need the body of Christ. You need the local church. And so if you're in the Quad Cities, let me invite you to personally join us in person for our gatherings on Sundays at 9 a.m. and 1040. If you're not in the Quad Cities, I want to encourage you to go find a local church that teaches the Bible, that serves the community, that loves Jesus, that gives grace. Well, hey, thanks again for watching, and we hope that you were blessed.